0: Like you did open to the book of psalms psalms eighty five for a moment, and then we'll go to first Samuel chapter seven, so we'll look at those two places. The word that came to me about this year, you know, I sit around and think about what is the theme of this year last year, I didn't do so well with it about being your brother's keeper. I still think about that, but maybe I was a little premature, but this year the word that comes to me is revival. Revival. And when we think of revival, we usually think of the, at least I do, of a back home setting every summer. The church would put a sign out front for their yearly, week-long revival. Some evangelist comes in and preaches and a song leader and so forth. And there's an attempt to get people saved, born again, come to the Lord. And uh, it's a good thing because we're told to, to do our best to bring people in, go out and compel them to come in and so forth. But there's much more to revival than just thinking about sinners and those awful people outside the walls of the church because it can happen to people inside the walls of the church. We can get so used to what we're doing, so familiar with the content of what we go through, the way we do it and the songs and everything, that we ourselves can misplace our joy or our once found enthusiasm when God brought us to him and it was a time of discovery and revelation and God began to show us things and a whole new world opened up to us. I can tell you that looking back through the years, a lot of people got used to that. And you get so used to it, you kind of drift and things can get dull. And it's to that crowd I'm looking to today to talk about Maybe it's a theme throughout the year of revival. Let's read Psalms 85. Let's start with the first verse. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land, and thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin, Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath, that thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Will thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? It seems strange the way you read that. The first three verses talk about the good things, the spiritual things that God did for lost people or for people who needed to be saved or brought to God. And they said, you've done this and you've done this and you've done this. And then it goes into, will you be angry with us forever? I think a picture that we see is that he shows us that there was a time in our life when God dealt with us in such a favorable and gracious way We were brought out of something that was holding us down and we got loosed and got free and came to the Lord and there was such a change in everything. But it seems now that all of that darkness is trying to come back and there's really something wrong with us. We're not, they would say, we're not doing well like we once did and like you told us that we will or should and it's very obvious that amongst us that, that there's no move of God anymore, that something is stale, or something has become dead. And the enthusiasm and the look forward to itness, whatever that means, is gone. There's a decline in our midst, they said. And so the answer to what he needs is in, in verse six, he said, Wilt thou not revive us again? Because you see, this is why, and this is how rejoicing comes. Because that thy people may rejoice. This is what reviving does to God's people. See, the word revive is like the word refinish. See, revive means that you revived before. You've already been vibed. And your vibe has died. And it needs to be revived. When you refinish a piece of furniture, a piece of furniture was once such an attraction to you that you bought it, wanted it, desired it, enjoyed it, put it in a prominent place, and after, you know, a generation of grandkids and spilt stuff on it, it lost its sheen. It doesn't have the place it used to have, and you kind of look on it with disregard, put it in another place of the house, put a flower pot on it or something. Then one day you look back and you remember how good it was or somebody says, you know, that's a remarkably nice piece of furniture. You ought to refinish it. How many of you know that refinishing something means you didn't make a new one? You took an old one that had gotten tarnished and made it look like it did when it was original. Just like remarriage. Remarriage is not, you know, a marriage. And go back, let's start over. Well, that's just the way it is. And then revive. Have you ever heard the word "Viva la France"? Um, "Viva la France." You ever heard that? "Viva." "Viva" means to live. To live. Long live France. I think there's a Spanish word for. Is it "viva"? Life. "Viva." I know in in Portuguese, I learned a sentence once in Portuguese, and it's vida, but it's the word life. See, our English word is life, but these other words from probably from which our English word comes, viva or vida, is life. So they said, give us again, restore back to us, bring us back again to what we have known before that we no longer have now. Like David said, restore unto me. The joy of thy salvation. I don't have it anymore. I'm not really questioning my salvation, but I don't have the things that exemplify salvation. I've got bogged down. I've let things slide or I didn't keep up or I took things for granted or I begin to compromise in order to get an advantage at work or something. Something is lacking in my life that didn't Used to lack. It was there once. And I'm not where I used to be. I need to be revived. I'm not rejoicing the way I did. I'm not rejoicing the way I should. God's people are rejoicers. They were known for that. Remember in Psalm 126, by the rivers of Babylon, there we hung our harps in the willows. Our tormentors required of us a song. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Remember that? They were known for this. But when they turned away from God, when they begin to take things for granted, when the sincerity of their relationship with God gave way to artificial things, they begin to disappear. They just died. You know, I look today at the church, I'm not talking about outside the church, but within the church, through the years, various polls have been taken that Christians have answered. I found some in my files. A poll once by Campus Crusade showed that 95% of all of the Christians that were polled admitted they were either carnal or babies. 95%, I don't know how long they had been Christian. You're a babe when you come to the Lord. But to say you're a carnal Christian is not a good thing at all. Because carnality is next to wickedness. And you don't want to be that. But 95% admitted they were not... What they should be, they had not grown. They had not advanced spiritually at all. They were probably members in good standing, equal with everybody else. Nobody was really lively, so they were whatever everybody else was, and therefore, that's all they knew. I'm that. When I hear the Bible, I know I'm not that, but I'm like everybody else. So they were carnal. One person talked about the theatrical presentation of the gospel. Isn't that true today, a theatrical presentation? The architecture, the millions of dollars that are spent are all designed for effect. It's not the word that affects people, it's the surroundings. Maybe it was the temple in Israel's day. Maybe it was a pageantry in Israel's day of the priesthood and all the, the way they did things. Maybe that was the focus. Today it might be the speaker with the name and popularity and TV and books and notoriety and uh, every service is groomed to the perfection so that everything is done just right. And the TV, talking about multi-millions of dollars in presenting the gospel without much effect. The headlines in the newspaper once said that a revival is sweeping the country without much effect. It's like it's something that Christians ought to do that once a year revival meeting and come to the church and, you know, hope something happens. And you can make up things. And and we're living in that particular time like clouds without water, salt It's not salty. We have a form of religion. We don't have any power in it. And yet God never moved amongst his people ever at no time in history that there was not a display of his power in some way whether it was to protect his people, to work a miracle, to turn water to wine or something. And now those are stories to these people in the Psalms. Here They were just stories that were told. Now, there is a story in the Bible. If you go back to First Samuel, there is a story in the Bible that I picked out this morning that would be good or a revival, a revival message. Because we're looking here this morning at people who are dry, somewhat spiritually dead, probably taking God for granted, adapting the modern talk, yeah, after all, come on, God, you know, come on hey, come on, man, That type of talk to put them asleep spiritually. Everybody's going to heaven. Nobody's that bad. Surely God understands nobody can be perfect. And after all, come on, whatever you talk, when you talk like that, you're just backing off. But in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1, 2, 3, this is what he said. And the men of Kerjath-Jairim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab In the hill, and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kerjath Jearim that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If, this is where it always begins, if, if, You do return to the Lord with all your heart. Then put away the strange gods and the Ashtoreths among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Whatever the Philistines are in your life, our lives, whatever foreign alien robber and thief is trying to depress, suppress or enslave us, God will deliver you from all of them, it is not God's will that we be oppressed, depressed, subdued, or dry. You agree with that? It is not the will of God that we be a dull, listless, unmoved, stale-acting people. It is not. Nor is it God's will, I think, that whatever man writes that we throw our Bibles in the air and take off running. You can have wildfire in the church without the truth. But God's people are unique on the earth. They are special selections by the Almighty who made the heaven and the earth. Who personally handpicks his own people. His message is, whosoever will may come. And there are certain people that have that message stuck in their heart different than other people do. And they come. They realize that they are not what they should be, that God says you can be like this, and there's this divine moment in which God deals with you and brings you to Himself. And again, as I've said, you can remember all of that, enjoy all of that, and that can become no more than a story told, a memory of the past. Alas, Today, I am much the same as I was before I came. I'm here this morning, and I'm glad I'm here because I'm trained to come. This is part of my routine of life. But I don't think I brought anything with me this morning. I'm not even sure I come expecting anything to happen this morning. But I know, I know I need something. I think that's why I'm here. I think, I'm not talking personal. I'm telling the story. You all with me? But I need something more than what I've got. Something is lacking in my life. I know I hear about it all the time. Actually, when I stop and get ready to pray or study or something, I can't get past the fact that something is really lacking in my life. Not something I've never known. It seemed like something was there once, And I didn't deal with it or didn't invite it in like I should have. And it didn't stay or whatever. But something's wrong. I know what it is. We need the ark. We need the ark. Glance back at chapter 3. You're familiar with this story, I'm sure. The child Samuel. The first two chapters about Hannah and the baby Samuel and high priest Eli, and the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. God wasn't speaking much. Very seldom were a people who were familiar with thus saith the Lord, and the Lord spoke, and divine direction was given by the priests constantly. That wasn't happening now. That wasn't going on now. There was nothing happening. They were in a decline, and the Philistines, these irritants in this world that conquer so many people, the Philistines came and we're going to really do them in another number. And they went out to battle, Eli's two boys, his wife, who was about to have a baby. They went out to battle, and the battle wasn't good, the Philistines were winning. And Israel came back and he said, what's wrong? We never lose. Every time we've gone out to battle as the people of God, we go out and we win. And you know, I've been sitting in this church for 10 years. I haven't gotten a blessing yet. I mean, excuse me. We've gone out to this battle and we're losing. After all the things that God said about I'll be with you and all of this, and we're losing. I know what we need. Let's go get the ark. Look at chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Let's go get the ark. If we can get the ark, we'll win. Verse 2 the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten. 4,000 men died, 4,000 mothers were crying. And they came back, verse 3, and they said, why has the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh and to us. And when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. I would think they're superstitious. Now the ark was a sacred piece of furniture. There was nothing ever assembled or made by man's hands in this world ever that was as sacred as the ark it was about four feet wide about two and a half feet high had rings on both ends and they put staves in them and the priests would carry this wherever they went they carried it they covered it with the curtains that were inside the temple and it was a holy and sacred piece of furniture you weren't even allowed to touch it i mean only the priests could carry it. if anybody else carried it they would die one time two uh, men came in before the ark and brought strange fire before the ark and they died. Died in the holy place. The priest had to come in and, and cover their back and pull their legs out and pull them. I wouldn't even look at the ark. It was such a sacred thing. You see, the ark represented visitation. It's where God met his people. He said, I will come down in a cloud and meet with you there. Over that box there were two angels, cherubims, and their wings were stretched forward on this box. Inside this chest or box was the Ten Commandments and the jar of manna and the Aaron's rod that buttered. But anyway, this was concealed. It was inside this box. And this box was holy and sacred. And I think the people began to attach some kind of a supernatural power to it, but it was never intended to have power. Power wasn't what the box was about, the ark. The ark represented where God met man and where he spoke to man. It was in the ark called the Ark of the Covenant. And so they thought if they go out and get it, maybe something good would happen. They set the ark down when they came out of Israel at the Jordan. And the Bible said the waters opened up before them and behind them. They said, I think I set it down in the very middle of the place and they walked past it on dry ground. It was quite a moment, I'm sure. And they carried it around Jericho. I know you know the story of Jericho. When they went around Jericho, the priests blowing the trumpets carried the ark. And they marched around Jericho. And on the seventh day, after the seventh circle, the walls fell down flat. And the people probably thought, well, the power was in the presence of that box. Because God said his presence would be there. But it was only on the day of atonement. One day a year for a moment. One time. People have wondered if Indiana Jones ever found that box through all the years, but it was at the last verse of Revelation 11, it's in heaven now. I think it was too sacred to leave on this earth, I do. But this ark was something that the people attached some kind of power to. It's like carrying a cross somewhere, you know, if you got a cross, you've got power, or the Catholics, you know, waving their cross or having a cross in your home with that figure on it, hanging on it. Somehow that's power. No, it's not. It was never intended to be anything like that. People think they're better off where they have the ark. Now, I'm not going to argue with the fact that Israel's temple, the first temple, the tent they made in the wilderness, the ark was in it. And then whenever they came back, Ezra and Nehemiah, they built a temple And the ark was there. Now when those temples were destroyed and they went into captivity that's when it all disappeared. But it came back in the days of the kings. Remember Solomon's temple? Had all that beauty but no ark. I don't know what they did on the day of atonement. There was no ark. What do you sprinkle blood on? I don't know. But I know that Without the ark, religion was incomplete. That's a mystery and a subject of discussion that is still current today. I think a lot of people like that. They think, well, we want to go to church and we want to have all the good things that happen to us. But, you know, going to church is just singing a few songs, listening to a, a meaningless or in something sermon. And my mind wanders and I go home and I would have been better off just staying home. Something is really wrong. God never intended for his people to assemble and just be dead. Go wherever the Lord is, there is life and there is peace. God is the author of life. God is the author of relife or revive. For a dead man cannot come back to life unless God brings him back. The backslidden cannot be returned unless God brings them back. And unless God brings them back, there's nothing but death. There is a way that seems right unto man, and you know the rest of that. But the way thereof are the ways of death. But they said, let's fetch the ark. Let's fetch the ark and take it out to battle. Well, they took it out to battle. And the people thundered. The Bible said the earth shook. They thundered. The people praised God so hard and so loud... That the earth thundered and the Philistines heard about it and said, what's going on? They said, the ark is here. They said, oh, God has come amongst us. They thought that too. God has come amongst us. And they got afraid. And the Lord encouraged them. Would you believe that God would encourage Philistines? Look at verse 9. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that you be not servants to the Hebrews. As they have been to you, quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought. Israel was smitten and 30,000 men died. 30,000. 30,000 men died and the ark was captured. The Philistines took the ark back to camp. Eli, the old priest, the Bible said, was old and heavy. That's just a nice way of saying he's big and fat. And he was sitting on a gate and when he heard the ark had been captured and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had been killed in the battle, he fell off the gate and broke his neck. His daughter-in-law gave birth to one of his boy's sons. They named him Ichabod, saying the glory has departed. And that's what happens. That's what happens to people who need to be revived. The glory that presence of God is gone. You can go through the motions and you can do all the things that you hope or know to do. But unless the glory is there, there's nothing there. Just form and routine and ritual. So they captured the ark, but they didn't have it long because when they had the ark, the Bible said God smote them with tumors in their private parts. And it didn't take them long to say, get rid of the ark. Send it back. We don't want it. This thing is a curse. They set it beside their god, Dagon. They put the ark there, and when Dagon fell over. They said, what's going on here? They sent the ark back. And when they sent the ark back, they put it in this house of Abinadab. They've been there 20 years. 20 years of no church. 20 years of nothing they didn't have a temple then David built a tent to put this in when he came and got it 15 years later 40 years it'll stay in Abinadab's house you can read about that in Second Samuel 6 when David said get it and bring it in that's when he danced before the Lord remember used to touch of the ark to put it on a new cart that's a sermon in itself and David was all mad. He is so thrilled. We got the ark. Glory to God. Put it on a brand new cart. We're not putting this on an old one, We're putting it on a new one. And Abel rejoicing, he was beside himself. He had a real heart for God. They stumbled one time and God reached out and touched it so it wouldn't fall, and he died. Just like that. That's why the ark isn't on the earth. Who could move it? Who would touch it? Somebody would. And wish he hadn't. David said, here we are doing our very, very best to put things in right order. And now you're killing us. If he hadn't reached out and touched it, it would have probably fallen off of there. What's going on? What are we doing? Can we do anything right? There was this depression came because God wasn't responding to his way. And finally they realized in the beginning... God never said this ark should be transported on anything made by man. It would always be transported by the priests who were anointed. And only certain priests could carry that ark. And if anybody else did, it was wrong or tried to. So they left it there in the house of Abinadab. They had a priest to watch over it. Forty years what kind of religion do you have in 40 years? 40 years without God. What do you get? Why would you even meet? Why would you even come? Unless you were just trained to go to church and you have that kind of social goodness in you. Nothing is coming out of it. I'm not hearing anything. Nothing is affecting my life. Everything is meaningless. In Israel, there was no temple, there was no worship. There was no ark. The people had become quite indifferent, to tell you the truth, because you regress. If you don't keep yourself fed and keep yourself close to what God brought you to, if you start taking this stuff for granted, you'll go backwards. And they had. They had. And i go back to 1 Samuel 7. They had done that. And these people need to be revived. They need to be revived. And the Bible says Israel begin to lament. Does it say that somewhere? They begin to lament. Lament is a word for sorrow. Listen to me, folks. There is a time in this last days that this has to happen. Because too many of the people who say they've had this wonderful experience with God and I've come, too many of those people don't live like they had that. If not acting like it, don't live like it. Don't deny it. It's just the fact that whatever, the pop is gone. And when you begin to realize that when God begins to stir people, God begins to move amongst his people, he said, what's wrong with you? You used to do better than you're doing. Did you hear what the man said this morning? Did you hear what you just read? Did you read that? Are you aware of what God is probing you about? He didn't save you to just sit and be some kind of a stick in the mud. God has a purpose for your life. There's a reason the Almighty picked you personally and brought you to Him personally and made you personally His. All your imperfections and all that stuff, He made you His because He's got a plan for your life. And to get you moving towards that plan, He's going to go, He's going to vibe you. He's going to life you. I think that's what they did to Adam. I think that's what Jesus did to His disciples. And divine life flows in, and something in my heart, like a stream running free, boom, 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 makes me feel so happy. Shouldn't it? Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Should we not have to work it up? Shouldn't it be in there? Oh, I believe in a sacrifice of praise when you've got to offer one sometime. You do it anyway because God is worth and deserving of all of that. Ma'am, I have been redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the price he paid for me to be here now. Woo! Nothing wrong with that in the right place. You wouldn't want to go into Walmart and do that. We're different. We're not the same old, same old. We're not the people that we were once. We're new creatures in Christ. Our testimony points to that. We are the people of his possession, the ones he saved. We have a testimony, a light that's supposed to shine, a message that people are supposed to hear and see in our lives. The psalmist said, many shall see it and shall fear and shall trust in the Lord. The work that God is doing is to make you a testimony to what he does. And if it goes into a decline, then the light flickers. The message is not there. It is a meaningless experience to those outside. I don't have to be like you. I'm already like you. You got nothing I want. But God begins to stir his people. He begins to move amongst dead people. Backslidden people, people who have slid back. I'm not talking about bad people that are steeped in pornography and ugliness. I'm talking about people who just there's nothing's going on. Just go to churches. All we do is have church. And God begins to stir. What's wrong with you? 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 And we begin to think and live with this and think about it. It begins to bother us. How many of you know this is the work of God? God stirring, probing you is what he does. Now, he can leave you alone. He's not required to do this. If nothing changes, he's the great judge of all the earth. And if you're judged for your sins and you're indifferent, he's fair. But not wanting to judge us, he deals with us. And He begins to probe us. We said here that at the end of verse 2, they lamented after these things. They wept. Their hearts were broken. They knew they were lacking something. They didn't care two weeks ago, but now they do care. God, what's going on? we're not going anywhere. We're just going through the formalities. And then the wonderful question, Lord, what can we do? What can we do? Going to meetings isn't changing anything. Listening to sermons isn't affecting us. Fellowshipping with each other is not really changing us. We're not much different than we have been. And God begins to stir up the heart, stir the question, what is wrong? What is happening here? And as the people began to lament, it became very obvious that the people were saying, what can we do? Now, verse 3. And Samuel spoke. Now, this might be the first time he spoke since he told Eli that he was going to judge the whole nation because of his sons. Eli wasn't much of a father, his sons weren't much for kids as leaders. And God judged the nation, judge his people, judge Eli. He said, you'll never be an old man in your house. Your bloodline will cease. Be no more Eliites because you were not a good father. Whew. So they came to that place. They probably started putting all this together and said, you know, folks, while we don't look like it, we're in trouble. We've had too much to not have it still active. We've been shown too much. We've experienced too much. We've been there too many times and saw it and heard it. To let that be meaningless or insignificant in our lives, we're in trouble. I need something to re-fire me up. Revive. I need a reviving. Wilt thou, Lord, revive us again? Well, he said in verse 3, if ye do return to the Lord. If you do. Now, you can, and whether you will or not is going to be up to the choice you make. How desperate are you? How badly do you want to glorify the Lord? How badly do you want to display in your life His work? How bad do you want to do it? How badly do you want to worship? How badly do you want to enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise? He said you should And you can, nobody can keep you from it. It's all a matter of choice. If the choice is not being made, then there's a problem. And you're asking yourself, what can I do? Well, if, let me give you an answer. This is how revival comes, folks. If you do return to the Lord, you see, you've lamented. You lament when you see your need. That's why you get in trouble, because you see your need. So he said, if you return unto the Lord. Isn't it wonderful that God is willing to offer you a way back? He's willing to offer you a way back. Not willing that any man should perish, but that all men should come to something. Repentance. Repentance. He's willing to restore. That's what the word return. Returned means to restore. If you've been turned and stored and you've gotten away from it, then he returns you to Restore you. That's what he does. He calls you to turn. Have you turned from the Lord? Has there been a time in your lives in here this morning that you turned away from your past sins? Never has. Well, you all need to get saved then. Do you remember the day it happened? Can you remember where it happened? Can you remember when it happened? Can you remember how you felt at that moment? I'm not talking about when you're 12 years old going forward and joining church. I'm talking about when God visited you, came to you, offered you salvation, broke your heart, you repented, and he brought a new life forth in you. You have to know when that happened. You have to remember that. You can't be born into God's kingdom naturally. Flesh and blood can't bring you in. Good parents, good. Good church, fine. Good this, good that. But none of that can save you, just like the ark can't save you. you got to have a personal experience with God, where God personally picks you out of the miry clay, brings you to himself in a definite and real way, And puts inside of you something you never had before, which you could not get any other way, and that's his life. God begins to live inside of you, temples made not with hands, but fleshly temples. This is his new temple. He's in there. And when he's in there, everything changes. All things become new. Then let me ask you a question when did they stop being new? At what point do you remember? Probably not. It was gradual. The devil works like that. When did things stop being new? When did things stop being wonderful? When did the volume of your praise get turned down? When did that happen? Because when it first happened, they couldn't shut you up. Man, praise God. I'm like a tree, like a tree. I'm like... And you were just excited. Excited. When did all of that begin to turn down? Was it ever turned on? Was it? Was it ever turned on? Was it a time it happened? Because if you're trying to recreate something that never did happen, you're going to get real frustrated. Only God can make it happen. But he said, you're the one who has to walk. When did it stop being what it should have been? When did it stop being new? When did the joy begin to wane? When did you start singing softly again? When did you start folding your arms and not singing? When did you do that if you had done it before? This is what I'm talking about. See, when you begin to lament over your personal loss, your personal selfishness, not to any longer do it God's way and you're backing away from, ah, just, you know, I enjoy the fellowship here. You know, I'm a young man person. I like all the young folks here. I don't care about all that. That won't make you go to heaven. That can't get you in the kingdom of God. You can have good friends, do a lot of things together and rejoice. None of that can bring you to new birth. None of it. And without the new birth, you're just having a good time. It won't last long because you keep hearing the word, it's going to challenge you to where you're going to, have to do something. But I stop and think, when did my praise grow silent? When did I start hanging my harp on the willow trees? When did I begin to mourn and lament about how hard it is and how difficult it? Is? When did I start talking like that? Man, faith message gave me hope. What happened to my hope? I used to be so excited. What happened to my excitement? That's what I'm talking about here in 1 Samuel. Of course, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about 1 Samuel. And Samuel said, you want to get back right with God? You want to get it right again? Let me tell you something. If you will return to the Lord, you'll have to return Like this this is the way you have to return verse 3 again he says you return to the Lord with all your heart does your Bible say that you return to the Lord with all your heart how many places in Scripture I don't know but how many places in scripture is the heart connected with something significant? With the heart man believes. As a man thinketh in his heart. In other words, the heart, God says, describes the kind of person you are. There is an evil heart of unbelief. God looks at hearts. Hearts. You can doubt with your heart. See, your heart, which is on the inside, is expressed by how you live on the outside. What you are in your heart is what you are. The words that come out of your mouth, they either betray you or they substantiate your faith. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the heart is the issue here. You can come to the Lord with your intellect and with your head, and you say, well, let's get the choir fired up again, and let's do this, and let's do that, and let's do this, and let's do that, and let's do this, and let's do that, and let's do this, and then let's do that. Well, let's do this and do that, and maybe let's have another, let's do this and let's do that. Man has so many things, good ideas to do. You know what God said? I want you to come back with your heart, squarely fixed on me and my ways. It was there once. That's why I'm calling it revival. It was vived once. You've known it. It slid a little bit in your life or a whole lot, but I'm calling you to say that if you will return to me with your whole heart. Follow me. Put your finger first, Samuel. Turn to Psalms. 34 and verse 18. Let me give you three verses of scripture to show you what kind of emphasis God puts on you, your relation to Him, and your heart. Psalms 34 and verse 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Contrite meaning humble and lowered before God. No more boasting, no more proudness, no more look what I've done. It's just a quiet bowing and humbling of the head. It means to crush like powder. There's no more you. It's all the fact that you need all of him. You know what a broken heart is? A broken heart is a heart that not only sees its need for what it doesn't have, But it's a heart that's willing to surrender itself to God. I no longer am willing to live on my terms. Almighty God, I recognize what I am and what I've done. And God, I surrender. Look in Psalm 51. Psalms 51. It says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God. You want to give something to him? Here it is. The sacrifices of God. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, Thou wilt not despise. Stop for just a minute. Think of this: How many people come to the Lord without a contrite heart? I mean, look who I am. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know. How many people come to the Lord with esteeming themselves a little more than they should before God? Does God despise that? Does he despise it? Well, then God is able to despise, isn't he? And one of the things that he despises is that bit of arrogance and haughtiness and look at me Think about me like you would some great one. Look how much I've served you. He said, you're just an unprofitable servant, tell you the truth. Without God, you're nothing. Without God anointing you, you can do nothing. All you can do is get in the way. All you can do is set yourself up for judgment and rejection by the Lord. He cannot use you and will not use you. Until you empty yourself of what is called self. Seeing yourself as somebody you're not. And humbling yourself to see that you're nothing. As the Apostle Paul said, I am nothing. Just a hose, an unflattering, cheap hose that is only good for cool water to where it's needed. That's all I am. That's all any of us are. There's nothing in in any of our lives that we can offer to God because all we like sheep had gone astray. There was none righteous amongst us. And if you're unrighteous, what can you offer to God? Nothing. All you can do is see that he is altogether right and you're altogether wrong. And if you want his goodness in your life and you're going to have to humble yourself on his terms, And with clean hands and a pure heart come before him. Otherwise you can't. You can play church. Put your picture on the walls. I mean, if you write a book, make sure your picture's on the back of it anyway. Promote yourself. Look at me. And God says, I can't use you. In fact, at the end of that verse, verse 17 says... That wilt not despise. What? A broken heart and a contrite spirit? Go over two books to your right. Go to Isaiah towards the end of it. Isaiah 57. And look at verse 15. What a verse of scripture this is. Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, What fellowship is on God's terms. I dwell in the high and holy place with Him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones, to bring them heavenly life. You may lay in the ashes, but He will lift you up out of the ashes. It is God who bestows honor on his people. Nobody else can. On his terms, in his time, as he wishes, as it pleases him, he does that. Yet at no time should a man ever think that he did this of his own, that he deserved it, or that he's special before anybody else. We're all special because we're all choices that God made. Isn't that good? If you want God's presence, if you want the ark, excuse me, if you want the presence of God in your life, if you want that place of communion with the Lord, He says the way you got to do it begins with your attitude about yourself. You must humble yourself and be contrite. You need that broken heart. I need. The, oh, I need thee, that type of thing. Every hour I need thee. Why? Because I cannot make it any right way without it. I don't care if you're a preacher, an evangelist, or you're the greatest known anybody. You're nothing. You're the choice of God. But he didn't call you to become somebody. He calls you to do things His way, and you can't if you get in the way. You've got to humble yourself before the Lord. You have this heart that says, Lord, do it your way. That means you quit fighting, you quit fussing, you quit complaining, and you quit arguing. You quit pointing your finger at each other. This is why we need a revival in a church. You quit avoiding people and mistreating people. You begin helping and and doing what you can because you're a part of the greater picture. You're your brother's keeper. And God humbles you before each other. You to esteem others as better than yourself. It's what makes the church be that organism that God inhabits. It's when the people are humble to him and he has his way with his people. We see ourselves as saved by grace. We were sinners and God has saved us. And he has made us equal. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. Nobody is higher than anybody else. We're all together. Now, when a church is not like that, and hopefully we begin to realize it should be, what can I do? then this revival spirit begins to come from God. This new life thing, you begin to change. You don't wait for somebody else to change. You begin to change. Or by change, you begin to reunite yourself with your past joys and experiences. You go back and pick up the broken pieces and God puts them together and you begin to worship again. You begin to witness again. The smile comes on your face and when you're tested and you're put to the test, you count it all joy. It ain't fair. You quit that too. Well, I don't think it's right. I can't believe it. He's in my seat this Sunday again. You don't do that either. All of that changes. I'm here as an invitation. God brought me here. He gave me life. I want to go to a church where I can experience this. I want to share this life with other people. I want to go where we can worship together one spirit before the almighty God and praise him for who he is and what he's done. God never let us get away from that. Never let that fade into history. Never let our children watch us as they grow up thinking there's nothing to this. God help us. God help us. Psalm 57, have you found it? For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in high and holy place with him also that, is this you? Are we talking about you this morning that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of those I'm standing in front of, those who watch this, or maybe just those in Isaiah's day. And to revive the heart of the contrite ones. To revive the heart of the contrite ones. What happens when God begins to revive us? Go to Acts chapter 3. When God begins to revive his people, what happens? Well, I'll tell you. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Revival starts. Revival starts. First the stirring, then the lamenting, the crying out, the weeping, the sadness and sorrow of heart, the lowering of yourself before God, the humbling of yourself before the Almighty God. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Remember he prayed that? Oh, I've lost something. David (laughs) prayed, oh, I've lost something. It's so wonderful. Oh, don't take that from me, Lord. Lord. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Make my heart the way it's supposed to be the way it once was. When I brought the ark into the tabernacle, Lord, give me that again. Give me that again, Acts chapter 3. Repent ye therefore, you. You repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. You know what refreshing means? It literally means breathing. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of revival come from the presence of the Lord. Repent and be converted. How can I repent? Repent you all know what true repentance is? I'm sure you probably do. True repentance is the result of an act of God on your life. God may allow you to recognize your weakness and your sorrow and your mistakes you made last week or last night or the language you've been using. He may let you sorrow in that and do nothing about it. Let you weep in your sins. Charles Finney, who I'm not a follower of his, but in his revival, they'd be crying out. He he was a pretty good preacher, systematic. He was a lawyer, and he was able to put things together so that people could see, whoa, God. They would cry during the message, and he'd tell them, go home. He'd send them out the door weeping. The men in the revivals would say, why did you send them home, man? They were ready to come forward. He said, let them deal with their sin for a night. Let them roll across the bed with the filthiness of their life and their sin and the way they're living, the way they're choosing to live. Let them live like that a while. Let all of that just begin to take a grip on them and show them how nasty and dirty they are before God because they see how they are with themselves. And you're worse than that before God. Let them live like that a while. Because there comes a day, that sweet, wonderful moment when God, who is breaking your heart, causing you to weep over your sins, we call it godly sorrow. With 2 Corinthians 7:10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. Godly sorrow works. Godly sorrow energizes the sorrow of your heart. God Almighty makes you to know what kind of a person you are, the kind of person you've been, and the way you're acting, even as a Christian. Backing off is a sin. And you've been living in this way and that way, and God causes you to see that. Just like he caused you when he saved you to see your sins. You begin to see that. And as God would do, and he works on your hearts and on your mind, Now more than ever, you want to get back in his good graces more than you've ever wanted to in your life. And you begin to weep. God has made you sorry, and you should be. And he brings you to him, and your broken heart, your sorrowful heart, you come before God, and you repent. Without repentance, no man shall see God, Jesus said. The first message of the disciples and of Jesus himself was repent. The first message, repent. You got to come to the Lord. But you can't repent unless God gives you the gift. His grace. And you repent. And God lifts you up. You see the word repent means to turn in your mind. I see, I loathe, I choose to change my mind. The word convert needs to turn around. I'm giving you simple definitions. A Greek linguist would have a fit over this, but it means to turn around. I'm changing my mind. I'm changing my direction. I'm no longer going to go that way ever again. Really? You're not going to go back the way you once were? No. Really? You don't think you will, huh? Are you sure you can stay this way? This is the way I'm going to live. This is the way I'm going to walk. Really. Go back to 1 Samuel. He goes again and he says this. After you turn your heart into the Lord, he said your hearts, prepare your hearts to the Lord and he will deliver you. Did you see there before I got to that, he wants want to deliver you from Ashtaroths, strange gods. Did you see that? Could it be that these strange gods have turned them away from God? Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble. The Ashtaroth was easy. That was a goddess, a Canaanite goddess of, of sex, fertility, and war, of all things. She was a Moabite goddess. The male counterpart was Baal. And what they were specifically then, they could be a lot of different things today. Some people can't stay away from pornography, can't leave it alone. It's a compelling influence. It compels you to disobey God. You know you're wrong, but you do it anyway because it becomes a God. You serve it. Your job can do that to you. You're making money for your family, of course. All the things that are excuses now, whether it's your kids in sports or sports themselves and the compelling put that for whatever it is that puts anything before God becomes an idol. And in the beginning, we threw them all out. Whoa, we're done. But they came back. They came back. They creep in. They've got to be resisted all the time. Even though we were taught that, oh, well, I, you know, I go to a good church. I'm all right. Praise God. I'm filled with spirit. I speak in tongues. I'm all right. I'm all. And yet they came back. Somebody in your life is laughing in a dark corner in your life, is laughing that he snared you again. With words of your mouth or choices you made and weaknesses of your convictions drew you back. And yet today, and yet today, beginning this year, God says, I think this is wonderful. God says, you can come back. But like this, you have to put away all these strange gods. Anything between you and me, anything between you and me, you got to get rid of it. Get it out of your life. Whether it's TV, sports, fishing, hunting, shooting, knitting, painting, Gossiping, that'd be really good. You got to get rid of it. If it's between me and you, if it controls you, if you want to come back, you got to start to get rid of these strange gods. And folks, for 40 years, 40 years without that influence of God and the priest, 40 years of Eli's stuff, Samuel just a boy, 40 years. These people were back to worshiping the Ashtaroths. They liked that Canaanite fertility, right? Because it was a big orgy. It was just something you did to glamorize and glorify Ashtaroth or Astarte the goddess mother. And the people had these elaborate rituals that they went through to worship these idols. And they liked it because it was physical, it was pleasurable. It was right now. You do it right now. Whereas with God, you're here right now, you gotta live, and you might not even see the effect of right now for five years. Nobody can praise you because of what you did, because they can't see any results yet. You turn around, you change your mind, you change the direction of your life, and you make a quality decision a moral and ethical decision to start walking with Jesus and turn your back on the world? Some people do that. I'm never going back. I won't get involved in that kind of a situation ever again with a boy or girl. I won't ever get a business dealing like that ever again. I will never drive like that again. I will not watch stuff. I will not do that ever again. Until you hate it, you'll go back to it. And you really didn't repent when you repent, you put it out of your life. You walk away from it. You have a struggle. You have a fight. The thing tries to come back. They always do try to come back. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, they come back. They try to get back in. You have to fight, 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 and more fights in this whole life. And while you fight, you worship and you praise, but you've got to repent. If you want the times of refreshing to come, Let's make it Shelbyville Christian Assembly instead of Acts 3. If we want times of refreshing here, in the literal sense, a time of visitation, that God truly has refreshed his people, has revived the people, has turned us away from our captors, has changed things for us, and we are glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. Or as Zephaniah 3, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, he shall save, shall rejoice over thee with joy. Can you imagine? So pleased to dwell in the midst of his people that he rejoices. So be it. And he ended verse 3 by saying this In this revival, how can you tell? Well, again, you put away the strange gods because you can't serve two masters. And you prepare your hearts and you serve him only. Now, those two things are worth sermons. I'm not going to come back and preach on it again, but you prepare your hearts unto the Lord. Nobody else can. It's your heart. Your heart is the seat of your affections. What are you going to do? Who gets to sit on the throne in your life? Is it you? Is it something else or is it God? Prepare your heart. This will take time. And then serve the Lord. Now, in closing, how can you tell if somebody has repented, been converted, and is serving the Lord? How can you tell? Isn't there a way that we can tell? And is this not true? It's not because you came forward and... Had to blow your nose a lot because you wept and oh god It's not because of what you did here that we all know you're now right with the Lord. We know you took a step. How do we know you meant it? Don't we have to watch a life? It's a walk. We can't tell in some things for a while. It'll take a while. I hear through the years, well, so and so got saved last night, or we you know we led so and so to the Lord. And I guess I'm supposed to say, praise God. You know what I say now? Good, good. Praise the Lord. It seems to me like I've seen multitudes of people in my lifetime who made the good confession who didn't last long. Some lasted a couple days, some a week, some a month, and so forth. Some lasted 15, 20 years. 15 or 20 years. Is it possible you can legitimately fall away in 20 years as much as you could in 20 minutes? I look for fruit. How long does it take for fruit to be born? Well, it depends on the tree, doesn't it? You don't put a kernel of corn in the ground and go, whoa, get out of the way. Oh, wow. Woo! Doesn't it take a while? Sometimes it doesn't even make it out because of the storms of life blow you. So, oh, that's the way God's going to do it. And they don't have a heart for it. Read the sower and the seed. You want revival? It may take a while. There is a life we have to display, a way we must live based on the choice that we made. We've got a life to live that verifies this. And as you live this way, life begins to ooze from you. How do I say this? Some of us have never lost our joy. It's never gone away. It's never quit being. Because the day you made this decision to turn away, you meant it with all your heart. And every time the devil stuck his head in the door, you whacked him. I don't want to go back to that stuff anymore. I look at my buddies I grew up with. I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be like anything. I want to be like this picture that I'm getting from my Holy Father. It shows me what I can be and what I'm able to be. And especially at the end of this life and this journey is heaven. I want that. I want to live vibed. I want to serve the Lord. I want all of you to serve the Lord, but coming to church doesn't mean ever that you serve the Lord. This is an act. When you go out there, that's an act. If you serve the Lord, you'll be here, but being here doesn't mean you serve the Lord. It's a choice you got to make when you go out there that you made a decision, if you did, to serve God, and you've got an obligation to prove it. And if you do, and if you live this life, if you keep yourself in tune with the Lord, there'll be evidence in your life when we meet that you love the Lord. There's fire in your bones. There's joy in your life. That God has given you a new song, and many are going to hear it. Amen. God is good. God, bring us a revival here. This year I ask in Jesus' name, amen.